0: W Media
1: Spy Talk, a podcast at
2: the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve.
0: Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein
2: and I'm Gene Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk.
0: On Monday, Russian President Vladimir Putin took a giant leap forward in his crusade to recapture Soviet glory, such as it was, by occupying more of Ukraine and threatening to overrun the entire country with troops and tanks backed by warplanes, artillery, and missiles. At the center of Putin's hybrid warfare tactics, of course, are Russia's all-powerful intelligence agencies. I'll be talking with an expert on Russia's spy chiefs in a minute. But first, Jean has an unsettling interview relating to their likely plans in Ukraine as well.
2: That's right, Jeff. There are reports that Russian authorities have lists of opponents they want to imprison, torture and kill in Ukraine. The lists don't just include politicians but reportedly also include journalists, dissidents from Russia and Belarus, ethnic and religious minorities, and
3: LGBTQI activists. If Putin follows through with what he has positioned himself to do and with what U.S. officials fear he may do, we're going to be in unprecedented territory. That was Amy McKinnon, national security and intelligence
2: reporter at Foreign Policy. I'll be talking with her later in the podcast.
0: And that's a very unsettling interview, Jean. On Monday, meanwhile, viewers around the world got a rare glimpse of Russia's virtually unbridled intelligence, defense, and internal security chiefs, whom Vladimir Putin has assembled for a theatrical televised session to endorse his plans for stealing more Ukrainian territory. It seemed like a good time to introduce spy talk contributing writer Filip Kovachevich, a leading expert on Russian intelligence to our podcast audience. Philip Kovacevich, welcome to the Spy Talk podcast. Now, you are a preeminent expert on Russian intelligence going all the way back to the Russian Revolution a century ago. Now, over the past week or so, you have profiled two of the current leaders of Russian intelligence, the boss of the SVR, Russia's Foreign Intelligence Gathering Agency, and the strongman who runs the f SB, Russia's internal security agency. I'd like to start with your thoughts about Sergei Narishkin, the SVR boss. He, he gained global notoriety on Monday because he seemed to be shaking like a leaf when Putin addressed him at that theatrical Security Council meeting because he was upbraided sharply by
1: Putin for giving the wrong answer to a question about Ukraine. Putin seemed bored. He he he's in charge, you know. He's he's essentially playing with other people, mm-hmm. and he uh, was bored, and he wanted to make fun of Narishkin. What what purpose did that serve? They go back a long time, Jeff. You know, they're friends. Mm-hmm. So I I you know it it, it, it does look humiliating uh, for Narishkin, but but you know Putin doesn't see it like that. Okay. So I, 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 you know, some people have said, you know, that this may mean that Narishkin is out of favor. I don't think so, because Putin and Narishkin go back a very long time. Right. But of course, no. it's quite strange to have a, a, a chief of intelligence, you know, <laughs> break up like that, you know, in front of the audience. That's it very was, strange.
0: It was pretty startling. So let's talk about him a little bit. Uh, you wrote over at the Spy Talk newsletter, how he and Putin met in Leningrad years ago. It was sort of a chance meeting, as you put it in a dark, dusty hallway of KGB headquarters.
1: Yeah, I lived in St. Petersburg, so I've seen the building from the outside, and I can imagine that it's it's pretty dark inside, and especially in those days of the uh, Brezhnev Soviet Union, the stagnation was in the air, uh, and, and two of them met. Uh, this is according to Narishkin. This is what he said about meeting Putin. We don't know. We don't know anything from Putin. Putin never commented on that. So this is just his side. And I, I guess it was pretty uninventful. They were working. Uh, I don't think they were working in the same uh, di- division or the department of the KGB. I think Putin was more counterintelligence, and Narishkin was more uh, about. Uh, um, I think uh, espionage within the Soviet Union, trying to talk to, uh, because he was he was focusing on science and technology.
0: Okay. And he became part of what we might call the Leningrad Mafia that Putin brought with him to Moscow when he rose up uh, into the presidency. First of all, he ran the FSB, uh, domestic uh, subversion, -subversion, anti-subversion agency, all powerful. Uh, But uh, 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 Narishkin went overseas, he was an espionage officer, he was a spy in in Brussels. So he must have done something that brought him into Putin's favor.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, they knew each other, they were back in the early early 90s, they were back in St. Petersburg after their, their failed espionage careers. Uh, Putin has failed in East Germany and, and Narishkin in Brussels. Uh, I, I, I write in my profile that Narishkin was actually betrayed by a mole and he was burned and he had to leave Brussels pretty quickly. And so he found himself in the in the in St. Petersburg, that's his native city, as well as Putin's. And he was looking for a job. And this was the time of essentially the Soviet Union falling apart, the new structures, the new uh, the new institutions being formed, and, and he got into the city government, just like Putin, and I suspect that they knew each other, because Putin also worked uh, for, the, for the mayor at the time, and, and so Narishkin focused on the economic dimension of uh, uh, at, at the time, the new Russia, the Russian Wild West, while Putin was more in charge of uh, also economic, but also trying to develop certain security mechanisms for the mayor. He was in charge of protection and things like that, and you can see that in their characters, you know, and you know Putin playing the tough guy and Narishkin playing the charming guy, the playboy. And Narishkin is the life of the party, whereas Putin is uh, in the back, you know, observing. So mm-hmm. I think they work well as a team, and and we've seen that, you know, Putin trusts Narishkin. You know, uh, people say that, people say that Narishkin is betraying Putin. No. They've been together for a long time. They're like the good cap and the bad cap. Uh, and even though the exchange, you know, the exchange yesterday was not planned, I'm sure that after the meeting, you know, Putin said to Narishkin, "Don't worry about this. It was <laughs> just a joke." Uh, <laughs> but that, that <yeah. laughs> uh, yeah, was I, I, rare. You know, it's,
0: <laughs> it's rare to see uh, an official in any government, uh, including the Russian
1: government, be dressed down so publicly. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yes. I mean, I mean, Putin has done that before with some oligarchs, but I, I think in this case it was simply a misunderstanding between the two of them, and and for some reason, you know, Narishkin, uh, it could be that Narishkin told us about something that's going to happen in the future that he made a Freudian slip because he spoke about the 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 Donbas region, the republics becoming. Uh, you know, a, a part of of the Russian Federation, which could be the next step on the agenda. Aha, so that's quite interesting for 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 a spy chief to really to reveal something like that. I uh, see. It's, it's he, he got interesting. He but got too I, far. I do ahead think of he's again. gonna keep his job. You know. Yeah, yeah, it could be, but he's gonna he's gonna keep his job because they uh, because they go back a long time and and in a, in in the a system like Putin's. You've you've got to have people you can trust 100%. And I think I think Putin trusts Naryshkin. Narishkin has shown that. I mean, he's just look at look at the the functions he had in the Russian government: the minister, the speaker of the Duma, very very responsible positions. Mm-hmm. And right now, you know, the chief of foreign intelligence, uh, which which is, is an extremely high position in. In the current power structure in Russia, but you know, I want to uh, say something that's very important, which is which is that that right now in Russia we have the old KGB running the country. We have so many former KGB officers in charge of the country. I don't know any country right now in the world that has such a concentration of intelligence people in power, mm-hmm. and I, and this is why I think it's going to be very very important to to predict you know the next steps. Uh, of 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 the of the of Putin and and others uh, and who knows you know perhaps this was just a, just a game between Naryshkin and Putin to you know to deflect attention from something else that's going on from well, somebody else there in the audience whose whose head is gonna is gonna fly off pretty soon.
0: We could say that they're all experts in deception. And speaking of which, uh, speaking of old KGB guys, another guy who came out of uh, Leningrad. Was Alexander Bortnikov, who's head of the all powerful FSB, the Domestic Security uh, Counterintelligence Counter Subversion Agency? Uh, he's probably got a very strong hand in Ukraine, uh, subverting Ukrainian politicians, so, so on. Uh, tell us about uh, Bortnikov and, and who he is.
1: Oh yeah, no question about that. Bortnikov has a different personality from Narishkin. Bortnikov is a, he's a, he's a quiet guy. He's a, he's a guy who carries out the orders. He's the enforcer. You know, he's the enforcer who doesn't ask a lot of questions. You know, Bortnikov doesn't go to theater like Naryshkin. Mm. Uh, he, I, I, I imagine he's got, he's got other interests, mm-hmm. uh, but he's, he's there to do the, the po- what I call the politically sensitive matters. And by that, I mean, assassinations and things like that. Mm. Uh, 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 and and we've, we've seen that in the past, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's been linked by, you know, the, the, the Russian independent press, uh, linked Bortnikov to the uh, assassination, to the poisoning of Alexander Litvinenko in London uh, about 15 years ago. And then there, there is a whole list of of the critics of Putin and defectors who died suspiciously outside of Russia in the last decade. Then there's a whole list of the former Chechen fighters who've been murdered outside of Russia. And and, and, uh, chances are that the FSB is behind those things. And who's in charge of the FSB? Bortnikov. And let's not forget that Putin started his national career in Russia by being appointed to to head the FSB. So Mm -hmm. the FSB is Putin's baby. The FSB is according to many researchers, a state within the state.
3: In order
1: order to understand the direction of the Russian state, you've got to understand the relations within the FSB. Uh, And and so in my my profile, you know, I tried to bring out some of these relations uh, as much as I could. And I think we need to look at the structure of the FSB. You know, there is a department within the FSB which is not well known is the so-called fifth service or the fifth department, Department for Operational, uh, for Operational Information and International international Cooperation. And this department is essentially the FSB's Foreign Intelligence Service. Uh, and and so, so we have the SVR, which is kind of the, the, the huge foreign intelligence apparatus. And then we have this much smaller, but I think more devious Mm-hmm. Uh, department within the FSB. Yes, that's that's in charge of of very sensitive operations, including assassinations, uh, in, including many covert operations of sabotage, which which I think, as we speak, are going on in Ukraine and not only in Ukraine. Uh, you know, let's make uh, let's make you know let's not make a mistake to just focus on Ukraine. We've got to go beyond that. We've got to think about other countries in the former Soviet Union and also beyond in Eastern Europe and beyond, because you know uh, um, the networks will now uh, come out, you know, the people, the, the organizations will see them right now, you know, when they're called to do their work. You know, the, the KGB had uh, uh, dozens of illegals who were supposed to be activated uh, at the time when the, the conflict with the West was coming to a some kind of culmination And it it could be right now that the FSB and the SVR will try to activate some of their illegals illegals to burn them. And they commit certain things, we don't know what it is. And there's one more issue I want to mention because it may become important in the coming weeks, which is the issue of the sacrificial victim, the person who is being sacrificed for the greater good. And the KGB, uh, has, has had that idea, you know, to sacrifice somebody to kill one of their own in order to make this person kind of a, 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 and then blame the other side. Uh, and, and, and Narishkin has spoken about Navalny being the sacrificial victim of the West, right? Mm-hmm. But he could have been projecting. He could have been talking about actually what they are planning to do. Uh, just think of this scenario. I mean, it, it, it may sound on the edge, You know, the assassination of a high level official of the Russian government and then blaming this on Ukraine or the West and creating another huge scandal. Remember, you know, World War I started with the assassination of Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo. So we have a historical precedent of a huge conflict starting after an assassination.
0: Now, I want to ask you. I wanna ask you about another little known function of the FSB and Bortnikov in the Russian kleptocracy, which is that he has uh, a unit dedicated to kind of economic and financial manipulation and insertion into financial uh, transactions, which he, according to your profile, according to your reporting, he has used to enrich himself and other people around Putin. Tell us about that economic uh, Yes, unit.
1: yes. This is another uh, department or service within the FSB. It's called the Economic Security Service. And this service is actually the Kremlin money tree. Using the officials of, and the officers of this service, they have infiltrated the Russian economy and are controlling every major Russian company uh, So that they can, they get, they essentially use this as a leverage to get what they want from them. Typically, it's it's the money, the money, the jewels, whatever they need. And this is why the leadership of the FSB, uh, they're the richest people in Russia. They're the the real oligarchs. The oligarchs Mm. work for them. I mean, the oligarchs keep the money that actually belongs to the, the FSB leadership and the leadership of other power ministries in russia the siloviki let me
0: ask you this Philip: if the western sanctions and particularly american sanctions targeted that economic unit in the fsb could it really paralyze or help paralyze russians or, or go after the oligarchs fortunes
1: you know, that, that, that's a great question. You know, some of these officials, like the chief of the GRU, Igor Kosyukov, they've been sanctioned four times already. So how many more times? I mean, they're collecting collecting these sanctions like stamps. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so you know, what, what can be done? Of course, there's going to be plenty of pressure on the oligarchs, but the, the, the oligarchs are dispensable. The oligarchs all serve at the, at, the, at the mercy of Putin and and the FSB leadership so they'll just they'll just uh, or maybe they', they just have, have enough you know we, we have to look at into the financial flows and see whether they have repatriated a lot of their wealth uh, you know following the the, 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 the the Russian leadership economic policy you see that they talk a lot about import substitution. I, I think they, they, they believe that they can make everything they need within Russia. Uh, and so, so they don't really mind the sanctions. They hope that the sanctions will, will hurt the West, especially uh, some countries mm-hmm. in the European Union more than Russia. And they think of the Russian history and how Russia has survived so many invasions and so many hardships. And they think, well, the Russian people can live through it. What about the Germans? What about the French? What about those countries and peoples used to comforts? Right. Mm-hmm. I guess they think they're good.
0: soft. Let Let's talk about the third leg of the Russian intelligence triad, the GRU. Now I know you haven't profiled uh, Admiral Igor uh, Kostyukov, the head of the GRU yet. You that's going to be coming along at the Spy Talk newsletter. But how do you how do you rate the GRU up against the SVR and the FSB? Who is there? Uh, um, is somebody more equal than the others?
1: You know, I, I get asked this question so often. Uh, you know, it's, uh, and it's a great question, you know, and, 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 and the way, I mean, my research shows that the FSB is actually in charge. We have to think about the structures, you know, the, 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 the Russian government is very bureaucratically oriented and the GRU is not at the same level as the FSB and the SVR. The GRU is a part of the Ministry of Defense. And then the Minister of Defense is the representative who goes, Sergei Shoigu, who goes to the meeting, let's say, of the Security Council. So the the GRU doesn't have a direct access to Putin. And for the service not to have a direct access to Putin like the FSB and the SVR, that means that they are not very important in the mm-hmm. Russian scheme of things. However, mm-hmm. the GRU could be given some missions, you know, that, that, they, that are kind of impossible to do or perhaps to distract attention from the missions conducted by the FSB and the SVR. So, so I would, you know, I, I would rank the FSB as a service number one. It's a it's, it's, it's huge apparatus. We are talking, they've got the border guards too. We are talking about hundreds of thousands of, of people working for it. Then the SVR, that's the elite spy club. And the GRU is there as well. And, and they, they have, of course, their specialties, the military information. And also special operations. Yeah, assassinations. As we've seen in the past, they're not very good at mm-hmm. and assassinations too. But I, I think the assassinations are always they are always coordinated with the FSB. There are no assassinations. Or that's that's my opinion. That 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 don't have the FSB connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't. The, the GRU would not even able would not even be able to get the passports they need to get out of the country without the FSB uh, assistance. So, so, yeah, looking at the GRU is important, and they, they do have an important part to play within the Russian intelligence apparatus, but they are not the top guys.
0: Now, the three intelligence services make up the spine of the Russian state uh, and, and the spine of, uh, of Putin remaining in power. Let me ask a wild and crazy last question for the interview here. Um, do you ever see any of them turning on Putin if things go sideways in uh,
1: Ukraine? Impossible. Impossible. They are not. They, 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 they are going to live and die with Putin. They'll go down with him if he goes down. And if he's victorious, which we hope he's not, uh, they'll share, share in his triumph. This is the pack that will stay together forever.
0: Thanks so much, Philip Kovacevic, for coming on the Spy Talk podcast. You're always such a pleasure to talk to. You're a real genius when it comes to figuring out what's going on in Russian intelligence. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for your kind words, Jeff.
0: That was Philip Kovacevic, an adjunct professor in the Departments of Politics and International Studies at the University of San Francisco, He's also a member of the board of the International Association for Intelligence Education. Gene?
2: Yeah, the GRU is often named as the Russian Agency Directing Cyberattacks, and they uh, appear to be pretty busy at the moment, launching denial of service attacks against Ukrainian banks and government websites. And by the way, U.S. businesses and nonprofits and other organizations have been told to button up their cybersecurity, just in case they hit here.
0: Yeah, that's That's a problem here because uh, corporations have been reluctant to participate in Homeland Security schemes for coordinating their cyber defenses. So I think uh, we're going to see the rubber hit the road if Russia launches uh, new cyber attacks on US banks and infrastructure. Uh, I think we're in for a rough ride, unfortunately.
2: Actually, Jeff, from my conversations with people in the cyber realm, I think that American business has been taking cybersecurity much more seriously than they have in the past. They have been taking steps, uh, particularly the banking sector, uh, to try and up their defenses, not just because of the GRU, Lord knows, but also because of all the cyber criminals that are lurking out there and have been stealing data and money, to be frank.
0: Well, I hope you're right. I'm sure that A lot of them who may have been laggard in the past are battening their cyber hatches right now in anticipation of Russian cyber attacks here.
2: We sure hope so. And we'll be back in just a moment. This is Spy Talk. Remember, you can subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack and we hope you will. We also hope you will subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter at Gene Meserve and at Spy Talker. We'll be back in just a moment. If Russia militarily occupies Ukraine, will it launch a campaign of arrests and assassinations? In a letter to the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, the U.S. says it has intelligence that Russia might go much further than targeting the political opposition. Amy McKinnon, national security and intelligence reporter for foreign policy, was part of the team that first revealed that officials had intelligence that dissidents of many types were listed by the Russians to be arrested, tortured, imprisoned,
3: or killed. This goes beyond just kind of Detaining politicians that may get in the way of a Russian invasion and occupation. It extends to um, anti corruption activists, to journalists, to uh, Russian dissidents, many of whom have fled to Kiev in recent years, Belarusian dissidents, uh, and also ethnic and religious minorities, LGBTQ plus people. So, a really wide range of people. Um, and our understanding is that it's essentially, you know, what they're looking at is casting a very broad net for anyone who basically has kind of pro-Western leanings, uh, who, is a pro- who is prominent, has pro-Western leanings, um, and, has, and has relationships with, with Western U.S. institutions and things like that. What, are the, what does he plan to do with these people, according to the intelligence? As far as we know, to potentially arrest them, um, but also kill them. I mean, these, are, these have been described as arrest and assassination lists. Detention camps? is that a possibility? Yes, that is something that we began to hear after we published our piece on Friday and the, um, the New York Times and the Washington Post have that letter which was sent to the UN which did did mention um, detention camps as well. Is it consistent with Putin's past actions in other places? If Putin follows through with what he has positioned himself to do and with what US officials fear he may do, this is going to be this is we're going to be in unprecedented territory. But yes, based on past past Russian behavior, there is unfortunately qu- pretty extensive precedent of them killing, poisoning, uh, detaining opposition figures both within Russia but also targeting their foes abroad, um, uh, such as the Skripals in the UK who were poisoned in two thousand and eighteen um alexander litvinenko who was poisoned in london as far back as 2006 so the russians have a fairly extensive history of doing targeted assassinations over but what you know according to this intelligence that we've reported on what we may see in kiev is, and, and in ukraine is something um on a, on a much larger scale than targeted attacks.
2: the intent would seem to be to quash any potential insurgency to thwart dissent
3: Yes, absolutely. Um, And Putin, I mean, kind of referred to this in his in his long and rambling and very conspiracy theory laden speech on Sunday. um, You know, where he said, um, you know, he described Ukraine as a colony with a pop with a puppet government, um, and he accused uh, Kiev's leaders of of fomenting and organizing terror. That's of course not true. Um, And he said, "quote We know them by name, and we will do everything to punish them." So. Really, incredibly ominous, um, and and you know, in some ways, kind of echoing the reporting that we have on this, and indicative that Russia has had some pretty good
2: intelligence sources in Ukraine.
3: Well, yes, I mean, there's deep concerns about Russian infiltration of the Ukrainian intelligence services, and I think that has been an obstacle to some degree in intelligence sharing between the U.S. and Ukraine in the build-up to this. Um, but it's also not hard. I mean, these are prominent, these are public figures. Um, you know, if if based on what we know about these lists you know it's journalists it's anti-corruption activists it's it's not hard i could i fear that many people i actually know will be on these kind of lists the united states has reportedly turned this information over to
2: the united nations high commissioner for human rights what is she likely to do what can she do if anything
3: what we have been told what a us official told us is that you, the us has been downgrading the classification of this intelligence Um, to share it with allies and partners in Europe, um, but also people in Ukraine as well who may be positioned to to help the kind of individuals that are on this target list. But in the event that Russia invades, it's going to be every man for himself, I think. Do you have any guesstimate of how many names are included on these lists? I don't, but our understanding is that that it's quite detailed. And I... I think, relatively relatively extensive. This is another
2: example of the U.S. getting intelligence and then publicly revealing it,
3: which is really quite remarkable, isn't it? It has been astonishing to watch just how detailed they've been um, in trying to out Putin's plans and, and the detail of what the, what's going on with the Russian military buildup. I know it's received some some pushback and some critiques. But I actually think, you know, as somebody who has watched Russia's foreign policy quite closely for a long time now, I actually think it's quite, it's quite clever because Putin has for decades now operated under this kind of veneer of plausible deniability, using kind of gray zone tactics such as cyber attacks, disinformation, you know, fomenting these separatist groups, using breakaway republics as for political leverage in Georgia and now in Ukraine. Uh, And it has. I think it took, you know, in a in a global order, in a global rules based order where we like to assume we can take world leaders, you know, words at at face value. I think it did wrong foot a lot of the response in the early days. I think it did kind of cloud public perception as well of what was going on and some of the reporting. But I think it's been quite uh, smart that from the beginning, the U.S. has been very vocal in sharing what they know as much as they can, not, not only with, with partners in Europe to get them on the same page, because it's, you know, we've seen this kind of interesting journey um, with the Allies in Europe, where it's, it's taken a little bit of a, a while to get, you know, the Germans and the French uh, up to the same kind of stage as alarm as the U.S. It does seem to be that they are there now. But there's just been this kind of effort to, to share and to, uh, to, to warn um, partners in Europe, but also Ukraine, uh, first and foremost, about what may be
2: about to happen. But the public release is interesting, and it seems as if the US is trying to undermine the Russian narrative in a more um, concrete and aggressive way than mm-hmm. they have in the past.
3: Because Putin is very, um, he's very shrewd at, at manipulating and utilizing narratives. He seems to He has a pretty profound understanding of of how it can shape public perception, and that, in turn, can have a knock-on effect in responses. Maybe not in a a substantive way. I mean, I don't think there was ever much doubt uh, amongst officials in in the US and Europe about who was responsible for um, fomenting uh, um, separatists in eastern Ukraine and for annexing Crimea. I mean, the the Little Green Men line didn't... um, didn't work for very long, but, but you still, I think, I mean, you see it in the media to an extent. I mean, I have grappled with this. I mean, how do we describe the separatists in Donbass? I mean, most frequently are they're described as Russian-backed, but is that, is that accurate? Does that go far enough? I mean, it does pose some interesting questions on how we, this, this kind of weaponization of narratives poses some interesting questions and challenges for all of us that are covering this. There are some real risks in this,
2: the revelation of the intelligence, mm. it seems to me in that Russia may get wise to how we're collecting it and they'll tighten up their systems or they'll get rid of certain people. So we won't get it in the future.
3: Mm -hmm. That's assuming that it's based on human intelligence. Um, Even if it's signals intelligence, mm -hmm. they may realize they have some gaps um, that need to be closed and they close them. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have, zero idea about how this is being collected um but my i imagine that they would be very careful that they would be very well aware of that risk um and that they feel pretty confident about their ability to, con- to continue this collection capacity i mean they have done now for um how how far are we into this crisis the the build-up began in november of last year um so you know, three and a half months, they've they've, they've they've seemed to have a very reliable flow of what Russia's plans are, and, and, and to a very detailed degree. I mean, we saw over the past kind of 10 days, a switch in the US messaging. You know, for a long time, we were hearing from US officials saying, we believe that Putin has not decided. And then of course, last week, Biden very decisively, and this was echoed by the vice president over the weekend, by Blinken, saying that they do believe that the Putin has now taken the decision. Um, and so clearly, they're getting some some, some very up to date intelligence on that. Maxar Images has been releasing kind of weekly, now almost daily, satellite imagery of the build up. Um, you know, specialists on, on the Russian military and on tech military equipment have been monitoring all these videos on TikTok. And that gave us a good sense in the, in the public domain of what was being moved and where. There's cameras everywhere now, nowadays, you know, uh, uh, your man on the street in Ukraine has a camera in his pocket. So there's going to be an over, uh, open source, there's going to be an overwhelming amount of information about what Russia is doing and where.
2: Are we still going to be able to do the sorts of overflights we've been doing? I would imagine not that airspace is going
3: to be shut to us. We already did see during Russian military exercises in the Black Sea that those overflights were kind of were were beginning to to dodge the Black Sea while those while those exercises were going on. So we've been using the satellite imagery to our advantage
2: to expose what he's doing. But it also seems like Putin is exploiting it, that he actually likes the fact that some of this has been publicly revealed uh, because it shows his muscular posture on the
3: border. I go back and forth on this question, but I, yes, I think that I think Putin is surprised at the extent to which we haven't, the West has not given in and the Ukraine hasn't given in on on his demands. It would have been much easier and much cleaner for him if, um, you know, he'd gotten to the stage of having 190,000 troops at the border and Ukraine had somehow capitulated. I don't know whether that would have been of lasting satisfaction based on, you know, based on the speech that we heard on Sunday from Putin. I mean, these, these, grievances are deep and they are dark Um, and you know i've long thought of him as a fairly rational actor um i'm starting to question that though now i think um he's been very isolated during the pandemic um and it shows you know this bizarre ahistorical rant about ukrainian history and he seems to really misunderstand um ukraine and and you know, what Ukrainians want and what would actually work in Ukraine. And so, I, you know, I do worry that he may be poised um, or he I mean, he is poised. There's no question about it, but he is poised to make an epic miscalculation about how Ukraine is going to respond. I was in Kiev um, just over a week ago and absolutely everybody I met said, you know, Ukrainians are going to fight and they're going to fight hard. Um, And I met plenty of people, a lot of, you know, a good chunk of people are planning to go to the west to Lviv um, near the Polish border. In the event of a war with russia but i met a lot of people who were saying we're going to take our kids to my sisters and we're coming back to fight you know it's going to be they're going to face a a a very um, uh, uh, vicious resistance a civilian resistance that was amy mckinnon national
2: security and intelligence reporter for foreign policy she visited ukraine less than two weeks
0: ago that's a really startling interview uh we can Only hope that it doesn't come true, but we wouldn't be surprised if it does. But, you know, I had another conversation with Filip Kovacevic uh, after our interview in which he was telling me last night to remember that many of Ukraine's security officials were trained by the KGB as well. And they know KGB tricks. They have all the background from Russian intelligence. So they know what Russia's intelligence services are up to and know how to combat it. So that might be a big equalizer.
2: I think it's also true that the Russians have pretty good assets in Ukraine. So spy versus spy, once again.
0: There's gonna be a lot of the shadow war in Ukraine, which has already begun. But uh, if the military forces begin to cross the border and make an all-out assault on Kiev, we're definitely gonna be seeing street battles Uh, and wars in the alleys where assassinations and uh, sabotage will be taking place. It's a very grim scene.
2: And that's it for this week's episode of Spy Talk. Thanks a lot for joining us. Remember, you can find Spy Talk on Substack, and please subscribe to the podcast as well. I'm Jean Meserve.
0: And I'm Jeff Stein. Thanks for listening to us again this week.
2: For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your
0: podcasts.